You know, ever since I was a kid on Easter, my mom would buy me these big chocolate bunny uh, milk chocolate uh, treats, and I enjoyed those. I'm a grown adult. I still, you know, enjoy them. And um, the Easter bunny's been around a long time. You know, I didn't know, I didn't really realize that until I was in the store the other day and I saw something. I'm not going to get to that in a second. But anyways, I was... I kind of thought, where did this thing come from? You know, in the 1700s, these Germans had this folklore story of this egg-laying hare, and they kind of brought that with them when they emigrated to Pennsylvania, and so, the, you know, the Easter Bunny thing has been around for a long time. And our, uh, by the way, I should just let you know, this isn't about to be the worst Easter sermon you've ever heard as I preach about the Easter Bunny. Um, some of you are looking quite concerned, as though I think this is somehow connected to the resurrection. I assure you, I know that it's not. But anyways, I'm in the store the other day, and I see this uh, Spider-Man chocolate, and I'm like, now hold on a second, Spider-Man. Uh, you need to stay in your lane, son. Um, you know. And by the way, the, uh, I'm also not going to sh- shift the sermon in a weird direction where I'm, adv- you know, I'm advocating for, you know, resurrection-themed chocolate, which would be weird, you know, chocolate caves and cookies that you roll away, and I'm not, that would just... That's not orthodox either, so I'm not going there. But I just bring this up to say, this just wheels off consumerism kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Because I think, listen, if you're just going to go, if you're just going to go secular with, with the Easter chocolate, fine. But there should be some sort of a law that it should have to be an Easter bunny. It's Spider-Man uh, needs to stay in his lane. I bring this up because with today being Easter, the highest point on the Christian calendar, for many people... Believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and believing in the Easter Bunny is really kind of the same thing in their mind. You know, just kind of pick your tale, pick your story, pick your legend. And uh, the truth is, though, about Christianity is that this is not merely a theological claim, though it is. It's not merely a spiritual claim, though it is. It's also a historical claim, and you've heard us talk about that a lot already uh, this morning. And, you know, before Jesus, there were lots of movements uh, of leaders who were trying to liberate Israel, and then when the leader was killed, the movement died out. And then after Jesus, there were other movements of leaders that rose up to kind of be, you know, rise against Rome. And and when those leaders were killed, those movements fizzled out. But Christianity, unlike all of these other movements, it didn't fizzle out when the leader was killed. It actually exploded through the Greco-Roman world. This is what history teaches us. Now, why did that happen? Because when you look back at totalitarian Rome, it makes far more sense, it's far more logical that Christianity should have been snuffed out. It makes far more sense that Christianity should have never even got any traction. And it makes no sense, if it were a hoax, that Christianity would have actually exploded through that Greco-Roman world. So why did it? Well, our text this morning is Mark chapter 16. It's a passage that makes the boldest the most provocative statement in all of literature. This is the passage that claims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus' body. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. 
He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him as he said to you. So they went quickly and they fled from the tomb for they trembled and they were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And she went and she told those who were with Jesus, who had mourned and wept. And when they heard it, that Jesus was alive, and that he had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as the disciples walked into the country. And they went and they told it to the rest of the disciples, but they didn't believe them either. And later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen Christ after he had been risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This is God's word. Now resurrection from death, that's a lot to grasp. That is a lot to wrap your mind around. This Easter morning, we're going to explore two things through this passage. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to reflect on why this it's reasonable to believe this. And secondly, we're going to explore why it's liberating good news for all of us, church, who believe this. And whether you're here this morning and you are thoughtfully exploring Christian faith, or you're here and you have been raised in the church your whole life, but you have had doubts, about the resurrection of Christ. I trust these things are going to serve you. Some of you as students on on high school or university campus engage in these sorts of conversations. And so hopefully this morning, this is an encouragement to you. Not only why it's reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Christ, but why it will liberate your soul. So first, why is it reasonable to believe? Well, the way that this passage is recorded, Mark is inviting us to uh, fact check. So there are literary scholars like Richard Bauckham who will look back on historical literature like this and tell you that the way it's constructed, it's inviting fact-checking. It's loaded with footnotes as opposed to um, the genre of ancient uh, poetry, legend writing. Right? They didn't give these kinds of details. So for example, in this passage and the passage leading up to it, you have historical figures who were named, who were there. Right? You have Pontius Pilate, who is the, the, the Roman ruler, who is a historical figure who presided over the, over the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You have Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent religious figure in the Sanhedrin at the time. He was the, he was the, uh, the Pharisee who, at risk of his own life, asked for Jesus' body to be you know, buried in his tomb. And you can go back and fact check who these men were and where they lived and, and uh, how they uh, you know, were, were present during the life and the crucifixion of Jesus. You've also got the Roman centurion who was present there. And then you've got these three women that are named. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. You've got Mary Magdalene and you've got Salome. And they're going to anoint the body of Jesus ceremonially with the spices. They still do in the world today over in those regions where they anoint the dead bodies with, with spices. And so they're all named... And this is, to, this is like footnotes. It's all inviting fact-checking. Now, I want you to consider something. Three times, at, at least, there's three times recorded, but many more times he, Jesus uh, may have said it that wasn't recorded. Three times he said he would, he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise. Mark chapter 8, he said it. Mark chapter 9, he said it. Mark chapter 10, he said it. Guys, they're going to kill me, but on the third day I will rise. Again, isn't it curious 
that this is the third day, but none of those disciples are thinking, hey, wait a second, remember that whole third day thing he kept bringing up? It couldn't hurt. Maybe we should go and see. Nobody's thinking that. Nobody's doing that. They are hiding for their lives from Rome because they think they're next on the cross. The women are going, but the women aren't expecting a resurrection either. They've got spices with them. They're like, let's go and anoint the dead body of Jesus. Nobody's expecting this. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're on their way. The women are saying, I wonder who's going to move that rock so we can get in. This is the headspace that everybody's in. Nobody's expecting the resurrection, right? And not only that, but again, because one of the great arguments about this, this text, the most provocative text in literature, saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you know, the argument is that, well, well you know, it was a hoax to kind of mess with Rome. But th- this, this isn't how you would write that kind of a legend to get any traction, because first of all, the Jews didn't believe that the Messiah was divine. So if you make Jesus divine, none of the Jews are going to believe it. And then when you study Greco-Roman theology, they believed that the afterlife was all about escaping the body. But Jesus' resurrection was in a body. They believed that the afterlife was all about leaving the material for the spiritual. Escape it because the material is bad. But Jesus' resurrection is material. So if you were trying to write a hoax, this isn't the way you would do it. Because the Jews wouldn't believe you, the Romans wouldn't believe you, the Greeks wouldn't believe you, nobody would believe you. And yet, thousands and thousands did. All of history agrees that this tomb was empty. It's not just the Bible that records it. It's not just Mark chapter 16 that records it. Roman history records it. You can read Josephus, read Tacitus. Roman history says the tomb was empty. All history agrees the tomb was empty. The question was, why was it empty? And why do we have the, and, and the and the reason we have this account of the resurrected Christ is we've got the eyewitnesses of these women, which is extremely important, because at the time that this was written, there people did not have any regard for women. You know, today we are still fighting for equal dignity and respect for women in 2019, but yet the gospel writers unapologetic, unapologetically write it down. It was the women that saw him first. The Babylonian Talmud said, and this is a direct, almost a, a word-for-word translation, the Babylonian Talmud said, better for the words of the law to be burned than given to the hands of a woman. The, that's, what, that's how they saw women. Your testimony is no good in court. Over on the Greek side, same thing. When you read Greek philosopher Celsus in the second century, he wrote that the, he, he argued Christianity because, of course, it was exploding in the Greco-Roman world. So Celsus wrote and said, the, res- the empty tomb, which we all know was empty, but it couldn't, it couldn't have been the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he says, because, quote, women are hysterical, so you can't believe the testimony of women. Right? All these wise men in here. No husbands laughed. Good. Okay? Right? The women are not hysterical. This is not the testimony of hysterical women. This is the testimony of faithful women. And so, this, so you would never write a hoax this way because nobody would believe it. And yet all four gospel writers, without any apology, they record that the very first witnesses, the very first evangelists, they were women. Now, when they saw, when they saw the risen Christ, the disciples transformed from these cowards hiding, afraid from death, to these bold men willing to give their lives even unto death. This radical 
transformation, and it is not reasonable to believe that any of them came out of hiding, which they were, for a hoax. Um, because you just don't give a, your life for a hoax. That is unreasonable. Now, it gave the disciples tremendous boldness to give a defense for their faith. It gives me tremendous boldness to give defense of my faith. It gives you, church, tremendous boldness to be able to give a defense for your faith. And when I say boldness, I don't mean being, being uh, arrogant and, uh, and insufferable to listen to. I mean having a conviction, having a sense of conviction that this isn't some sort of a tale like the Easter Bunny. Now, why is this all liberating good news? I think those are some scholarly reasons that need to be explored. The whole, I hope, serve you if you're here this morning and maybe you're a teenager who grew up in church your whole life and you're like, why do I believe this? I hope that that's encouraging to you and why, are, why we can place our hope in this faith. And for those of you who are thoughtfully exploring, I hope this is encouraging to you. But now let's shift from those kind of scholarly historical reasons to why we should believe it to the implications of the, liber- the liberating reality for us, church, who do believe it. You see, just like a criminal walks out of the prison doors after their sentence is fulfilled for paying for their sin, three days later, Christ walks through, walks out the tomb, having paid for our sin. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, it's paid in full. And three days later, that empty tomb was like God stamping, paid in full across human history in a way that nobody would ever miss. The empty tomb is the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son as he was raised by the power of the Spirit. This is the hinge on which all of Christian faith swings. You see, the real question is not what do you think about this teaching in the Bible? What do you think about that teaching in the Bible? What do you think about this verse in the Bible? What do you think about that verse? That's not the main question. The main question is who was Jesus? Because if Jesus was a lunatic, then you can dismiss what everything the Bible says, what it teaches does not matter. But if Jesus was the Lord, and I'm telling you that he is, then everything that he says matters. And the most reasonable thing for us to do is to receive his scandalous saving grace and to bend our knee to the Lord of grace and live to the glory of the Lord of grace. And maybe you're wondering, well, what does this resurrection really mean? I mean, we can't grasp eternity. Uh, what difference does this make on Monday? Right? I got bills to pay. I got Mouths to feed, there ain't nothing in this world for free, and I'm wondering why this is good news for us on Monday. Does the, does the resurrection make any difference now? It makes all the difference now. I mean, it makes all the difference now, because the resurrection means that the world that we wish we had but we don't have, the wholeness that we wish we had spiritually, physically, socially, economically, physiologically, the wholeness that we crave in this life that we don't have is coming, that it is promised. The resurrection means wholeness of being. And, and, and not just simply a future hope, but something that changes our hope day to day. Because ironically, if you're skeptical of the resurrection, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're going to spend your entire life trying to get what, the res- what is promised in the resurrection. The resurrection promises this wholeness, this joy that knows no horizon, this, it, no, it, the resurrection promises a, a, a sense of uh, fulfillment and peace in God. It, it presents a health and a wealth like we cannot fathom. And if you're skeptical of the resurrection, you're still going to chase after all those things. But you're going to chase after them to no avail. I'm going to give you an example. You have a, a scientist named, a 
proficient scientist, brilliant man, uh, notorious atheist named Christopher Hitchens. He has a brother named Peter. Peter's a British journalist. Peter lived in the USSR under the communist regime, under the Iron Curtain. He wrote a book called Rage Against God because uh, Peter Hitchens ended up coming to faith um, because living behind the Iron Curtain in the USSR, you've got to remember, communism, the, the official state position is atheism, and the official mandate is utopia, right? So essentially, uh, naturalism 101 is there is no God who will save us. We must save ourselves, right? That, that's that when you read Plato and, uh, Plato and Aristotle, that's the vibe you get from the granddaddies of political philosophy. There is no God. We must save ourselves. Now, he called us homeless utopians in his book, Rage Against God. He said we're homeless utopians because if we reject the God of heaven and we reject the resurrection and we reject that, that God is going to bring heaven, we are still thoroughly incapable of creating heaven for ourselves because the, the communist regime was not a picture of heaven. Now, just to be clear... I'm not saying that loving our neighbor is a, is, is a, a, a specifically Christian idea, and if you're not a Christian, you're not going to love your neighbor and be generous. No, no, no. Of course, regardless of your worldview, you can love your neighbor and, and, and be generous. What I'm saying is this world is in a paradox, right? We will not save ourselves. For every act of generosity, you'll find an act of atrocity. For every act of selfless love, you're going to find an act of selfish oppression, right? That's why your newsfeed is full of inspiring things to say life is great and we love this world and things that make you want to just you know, burn your house down with anger because you can't believe the world that we live in. That's the paradox, right? So what, what Peter Hitchens was getting at when he says we're homeless utopians is he's saying we can't save ourselves. What the resurrection is saying is the life we wish we had is coming in Jesus Christ. And that transforms now how we live in the day-to-day. It is a, a radical um, uh, shift in our hearts and in our minds that gives us hope and increasing strength and joy right here in the present. The gospel message is not, you know, hang on until heaven and then you'll have joy. This gospel message provides joy now because it stretches our vision all the way back to what Christ accomplished on the cross. We look at the resurrection, we think about the implications of the resurrection, and it cascades our vision all the way to the future to see what it is that Christ promises with his return, which is, of course, the restoration of all things. And so this gospel is not just the good news that serves your entrance into Christian faith. This gospel is the good news that is the power by which you live out your Christian faith. It's the power that propels the life you live in the Christian faith. Because, because it changes us. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he called the gospel power. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel it's, it's of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. You see, news is power. Because news is not something you do. News is something that happened in the past that's affecting you. And when you get news, news can change your whole day, news can change your whole life. You can get a phone call and get some news that'll change your mood for the day, could change your mood for the night. You can get news from your doctor that will make you skip down the street or make you fall on your carpet and cry. News is powerful because news happens outside you, but it's affecting you. And you have to now live with the implications of that news. We Christians call the gospel good news because the good news of the gospel is that we don't save ourselves. Something happened outside us apart from us that has now got implications for us and we now live out of that reality. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
right? Every other world religion says, do this, do that, do the other thing, do this, and then the God will accept you. Christian faith says, no, my God accepts me because my God came in Jesus Christ and did everything for me. He provided what it is, everything, uh, everything that it is that he required. And so this is why it is good news, because the gospel is not about us. It is for us, it is what Jesus has done for us. And when you consider all of the miracles of Jesus, they're like a teaser trailer for what's coming. You know, I talked about this already, so I'll just briefly mention it again, because I want you to remember this, church. Think about the miracles that Jesus did. He wasn't filling cavities. He wasn't curing male pattern baldness. These are not the miracles Jesus was doing. What was he doing? He was making the blind see. Why? Because that's a miracle that makes us recognize God can open the, our eyes, open the eyes of our heart to see his love, to see his gospel, to see what it is that he has come to do. Jesus opened the, uh, the ears of the deaf. Why? Because it is to remind us of what he's coming to do, to open our ears so we can hear the good news, to put our faith in him, to trust in him, to believe in him that this short little life we have is not all that there is. He caused the lame to walk. Why? To remind us that it's by his power alone that we can get up and follow Christ. By his grace. He caused the dead to rise and he caused all those who had diseases who are shamed by the culture. The culture said you're unclean and they cast them out of the city in the ancient world. They made them live in little communities outside the city. They said you're unclean. And Jesus went and touched those people and he healed those people. Why? Because it points to the cross and the empty tomb, the work of redemption that all of us who are unclean, through him would be made clean. This is what he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. The miracles were not only the proof of the deity of Jesus, but they were signs that pointed at what would happen through the resurrection of Jesus, and they're like a teaser trailer t- teaching us about the feature of, the, of eternity, which of what is going to be restored in Jesus. You know, consider why suffering is so hard. Consider why it's so hard to face heartache and disappointment, disease, poverty, atrocity. Why is it so hard? It's hard because life is short. And so when suffering hits us in a, in a, in a, in a severe way, or we look at the suffering on the world in a severe way, it's hard to deal with because we know that life is so short. Man, I was in the hospital this week with a friend of mine who only has a few months left to live. And everybody in that room, it was dark. It was hard. I'm, I'm you know, praying for him and his family and looking for opportunities to share with them this hope that I'm sharing with you right now. And I want to do that in a loving and a caring and a sensitive way. But I was I'm sitting in that room and I'm having conversations with, with people. When you're, when you're staring death in the face, it's hard. Why is it so hard? Because if this short life is all there is and your aging body is all you get, and this world is all we have, then globally speaking, this is really hard. But if this resurrection is true, if this historical account of Jesus Christ in 33 AD is true, and it is, then this life is not all there is, and that aging body of yours is not all you get, and this world is not on a trajectory of eventual and inevitable decay but it is on a trajectory of, event, of eventual and inevitable renewal. Because that's what the picture of the resurrection is. That's what Jesus resurrected bodily is. He didn't float around like a ghost. He came like, back like this and he said, you guys got any fish? I'm hungry. Why do we have those texts? Because it's the restoration of all things. This is what's coming. The inevitable renewal. You know, there's a woman named uh, Joni Erickson Tata, and when she was 17 years old, she was in a swimming accident. 
She advocates for people with disabilities now because she's a quadriplegic, and she's been a quadriplegic since she was 17 years old. And she was thinking about the resurrection, you know, she's a Christian, she came to faith, and here's what Jody said about it. She said, I, with shriveled and bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful, dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who is spinal cord injured like me? See, the gospel is not just a mental crutch for Christians. This isn't some story that we believe that makes us sleep a little bit better at night. It's not wishful thinking that gets us through tough spots. No, to borrow from J.R.R. Tolkien, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply one more great story pointing to some underlying reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection is the underlying reality to which all other restoration narratives point. You see, it's the resurrection of Jesus that makes us obsessed with resurrection. That's why every narrative and story that you read in the films that we go to, we want to see tremendous conflict, we want to see great suffering, and we want to see somebody rise from the ashes. Every human heart craves that. You know what the number one story in the world is? In the world globally, it's been translated in various forms and various ways, but the number one story arc in the world is Cinderella. Because everybody loves the Cinderella story. Huge suffering, huge outcast, real rejection, but then rising from the ashes. Why do we love all these stories? And there's a million of them. Because all of those stories of rising from the ashes and and this obsession that we have comes from the truth. Something deep in the soul of man. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And there's something in us that he craves that eternal and the resurrection points unapologetically to that eternal. The gospel is not merely a story that offers us some you know, passing inspiration because it's true. In 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross and three days later the tomb was empty and that is a historical fact. And that historical reality, the good news of that historical reality, it has the power to lift your soul from the depths of sorrow. It will change how you live. It will change how I live day to day. If you know that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life you're ever going to have, how do you relate to that on Monday? You are free to love, to serve, to give. You are free to live an outward-facing life and love your neighbor. You are free to live with a radical sense of generosity. In the same way that the disciples with reckless abandon could give their lives away, we will increasingly have the freedom to be able to give our lives away and just care for people, care for the city, be a blessing to this city. Because we don't have to hoard all of our time and all of our money and all of our everything because this life is all we got. We are free from all of it. Absolutely free from all of it. There is no hardship. There is no trial. There is no sorrow that can destroy you because the only thing that could have destroyed you, Christ destroyed at the cross. He defeated death in the grave. And united to Christ by grace and through faith, death is not final. And you know, after the resurrection, Jesus showed the disciples his scars And the last time they saw Jesus was on the cross, and they thought that those scars were ruining their lives. But those scars were saving their lives. You know, seeing the scars from Christ's crucifixion, it actually empowered the apostles for their eventual crucifixions. They lived with this scandalous generosity, love, and boldness. And as the church, we're able to do the same, precisely because this life is not all there is. And so every Sunday at the Lord's table, as we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember Christ's scars. And the Spirit empowers you and I to live with increasing freedom from our scars. Because who in this room doesn't have scars? 
Who in this room doesn't have pain, doesn't have suffering, doesn't have hurt, doesn't have a reason to cry? All of us do. We're batting a thousand on hurt and pain in this church. All of us walking through the store, there's glorious things we're excited about and we're going through hard stuff. If you take the time to have a, have a coffee and over, over the months and years here at Redeemer as we connect and you get to know people, you'll know every single one of us has scars. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember Christ's scars, that he brings healing to our scars, and that eventually one day he's eradicating and removing every scar. This is the resurrection. This is the promise. This is what you're living in day in and day out, church. This is the truth. Now, if you don't believe the gospel... And perhaps you're here today and you've struggled with this and to believe the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, you can be moved and inspired by some other story. You can be moved and inspired by anything. Temporarily. Until your enchantment fades. The moment you remember that not everything lasts forever. And if Christ did not rise, then in the end... Everything we say matters. Everything we say is important in life. Everything say, this is the reason I wake up in the morning and this is what I live for. It's all being swallowed up in death. But Christ did rise. And he defeated death. And if you believe this gospel, there is nothing in this world that can crush you because you are loved with a love that is so strong that death itself will never hold you. The resurrection is your assurance that in the end, joy will come from all your tears. Strength will come from all your weakness. There will be rescue to your feelings of abandonment. There will be healing from your pain and life from your death. And that, friend, changes how you live on Monday. United to Christ by grace and faith, time is no longer your enemy that is slowly, inevitably stripping everything away. Time is now God's ally, and he will restore everything and raise you from death to enjoy it. Deborah from C.S. Lewis, some people say temporal su- of temporal suffering, there's no future bliss that can make up for this. But not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. The resurrection was just as inconceivable the day it happened as it is today. It was just as hard for everybody to grasp the day it happened as it is today. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day will quicken your heart and your mind to believe it today. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Let's pray.